We'll be reading from the book of Jude this morning, the letter of Jude at the end of the New Testament, just before Revelation. We began this series last week called Contending for the Faith, and as I mentioned last week, I want us to read this entire letter each week, even though we'll only be focused on a short part each Sunday morning, so to remind ourselves of the entire context of why Jude is writing, of his argument throughout the letter, and then we'll center in on one particular passage. This morning's passage will be verses 5 through 10, which will be on the screens for you in just a few minutes, but for now, let's just follow along in your copy of God's Word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, Casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. As we began last week, we looked at the first four verses, the salutation where Jude introduces himself as the writer, but he does not boast that he is the brother of the Lord Jesus. Instead, he calls himself the slave or the servant of Jesus Christ, and he calls himself the brother of James. James, the leader of the church, of Jerusalem, James, a figure that was stalwart in his faith, and these people would have known very well. We reminded ourselves of the reality that we don't exactly know the context or the situation in which Jude is writing. We don't know the church or the individuals to whom he's addressing this letter, which is why Jude is often referred to as one of the little c Catholic epistles. It's a universal letter to remind the churches that were recipients that they should be heeding God's word and not allowing false teachers and immoral livers to stir up dissension and to cause blasphemy to exist within the body of Christ. And so he writes to them, the ones who are called, the ones who are beloved in God the Father, the ones who are kept. Remember we introduced this, this triad that Jude begins with in verse number one. And he follows it up in verse number two by giving them the greeting that's typical of a letter of this day. May mercy and peace and love, a similar triad, be multiplied to you. So he's writing to a church. He wants them to be strengthened. He wants them to be able to have mercy and peace and love. And he reminds them that they are the ones who are beloved. They're the ones who are kept by the Lord Jesus. And so in verse 3, he calls them the beloved, and he says, I was eager to write to you and to talk about our common salvation, our shared brotherhood, but there was an intrusion. There, there was a problem that I became aware of, and so I felt it necessary to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was, remember the word, hapax, that was once and for all, this unique uncompromised, unchanging, enduring body of apostolic teaching. He's calling the church to not only believe it, but to live in light of it. And so he reminds them, you, you must hold fast and contend for this faith. Why? Verse four, because certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've come in and they've said, yeah, we believe what you believe. Yeah, we want to be members of your church. Yeah, we want to come to your Sunday school class. We want to come to your potluck. We want to go to your fellowships. They've crept in unnoticed. 
But he said, long ago, long ago, just as in the Old Testament, just as the prophets have mentioned, there are those who have been set apart for condemnation because they will not repent of their sin. They play a game. It's a charade. The outside may look spiritual, but their hearts are still far from the Lord and they're leading people astray. And he says, they've perverted the grace of the Lord Jesus and they've denied the master and the Lord. And in verse five, he begins to explain what their errors were. And he begins by saying, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, who afterward he destroyed because they didn't believe. Now, just very briefly, I wish I had a half an hour or so just to talk about this, but just very briefly, I'll say that there's a textual difficulty here in verse number five. Some translations read the Lord, some translations read God, some translations read Jesus. The ESV renders this passage that Jesus is the one that saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And for our ears, when we think of the old covenant, we think, well, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't the one that physically is saving the people out of the land of Egypt. I'll simply say a couple of things. Number one, we know that Jesus is there because he's God. We know from 1 Corinthians 10 and from Hebrews chapter 3 that the New Testament writers saw Jesus as the, the type that was foreshadowed in all of these Old Testament stories. Paul even wrote that the people were, were brought to the rock and that rock was Christ. So we see the New Testament apostles and the New Testament writers looking back at the Old Testament and just as Jesus did in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection, they interpret everything through the lens now of Jesus. They find all of the old covenant promises fulfilled now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't for me really matter that Jesus was not fleshly incarnate in the Old Testament some scholars believe that when we read in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord, that this is a theophany, that this is a Christophany in the Old Testament, that this is Jesus appearing. They equate this angel of the Lord, which shows up in, in very powerful ways, in very unique stories. They would often see this as a pre-incarnate visage of Jesus. I don't have time to explicate all of that this morning. I'll simply say, God did it, the Lord did it, which means Jesus did it. And so I don't want you to get hung up over whether or not Jesus was there. The Lord is the one that did it. He's the one that saved them. And all of our ultimate salvation, not only the Old Testament Israelites who were brought out of Egypt, but our salvation now being brought out of the land of our own slavery and sin finds its ultimate reality in the Lord Jesus. And then, as he goes throughout this paragraph, we find three examples from the Old Testament. Three typological examples that I would want you to look to to understand how he is um, explaining the sins of the people that have infiltrated the church. These will be on the screen for you. The first is the Israelite people. 
the Israelite people. He says there in verse number five, be reminded of these people who originally were saved out of the land of Egypt, but afterward they were destroyed because they did not believe. He's referring here to the situation in Numbers chapter 14 when the spies have gone in and they've spied out the land and there are only a couple who are faithful who say, no, we can do this. But remember, most of the spies come back and report to the people, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. There's too, they're too big. We can't believe the Lord and his promises. And the Bible says that the people for 40 years experienced God's judgment because they did not believe. They had already been saved by the Lord. They've already been brought out, and yet they doubt God's goodness. They doubt his word. They doubt his promise. And as you've heard me say before, these are the same temptations and same lies that are given Adam and Eve in the garden, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his promise, to doubt his word. And the people say, I don't know, surely you've brought us here to the wilderness so that we would die. And they wander for 40 years and they grumble. The Old Testament people of Israel did not believe. Now, we'll just jump ahead for just a second. And if you look at these next couple of examples just briefly, you find that in these next couple of examples, it seems that the kind of punishment that is brought to them is eternal destruction. You think, well, there were some people that were saved, right? I mean, there were some people in Israel that were truly God's people, right? And I, and I think that that's the point that Jude and that other New Testament writers try to bring out when they reflect back upon Israel. Not all Israel was Israel. When we think about Old Testament Israel, we have to think about them as a, a nation state, the people of God as he's establishing a nation, a political entity with a royal king. And then we have to think about the people of God those who truly had faith, those who truly believed, or as the book of Deuteronomy and others would describe it, those who had truly been circumcised in their heart. This, this mark of circumcision that was brought to the people to identify them as part of the ethnic people of God, the New Testament writers look back on and say, but they weren't all circumcised in their heart. They had not all truly trusted in the promises of God. And so there were some who were brought out of Egypt and saved by God who were not saved. They've tasted God's goodness and yet they rejected it and they walked away. And Jude wants the church to hear and to heed this reminder, don't be like them. Just because you may have at one time professed Jesus as Lord, just because you may at one time have walked an aisle or been baptized or joined a church and people thought you were saved and you told people you were saved, don't rely upon a one-time decision and believe wrongly that you've truly become a part of the people of God if you continue to persist in unrepentant sin. Because your life will bear out that you'll be just like those who were truly uncircumcised in their heart. Then he gives the second example, the angels. The angels. He says in the next verse, 
Verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What in the world is he talking about here? He's talking about the fall of the angels before the created man and demonic beings and Satan having his, uh, his minions now doing his work. It's clear, I believe, because it's in between two other Old Testament examples that he's referring to an Old Testament example where angels did something they shouldn't have done. And we have this very strange occurrence in Genesis chapter 6 of angels who the long story made very short is, as odd as it may seem for us modern hearers and readers to grapple with, angelic beings leave their proper dwelling, reject the authority of God, much like the original fallen angels, they take on human form, and for some reason in God's sovereignty, in taking on human form, they are allowed to engage in inappropriate relationships with the daughters of men. They commit immorality. And in this very odd situation from the Old Testament, there are people who are born out of this angelic and earthly union. And right after this is the flood. We see God bringing judgment on humanity because all of their deeds were wicked. We see God bringing about devastation. And so some people will look upon a passage like that and they will hear Jude referring to it and they'll say, well, that kind of stuff still happened today. And I think the destruction that's mentioned here in verse 6 and 7, the eternal destruction that is brought about to these angelic beings and the judgment that is brought upon humanity through the flood has set a, a new demarcation line whereby I would argue that the Lord doesn't allow in his sovereignty those things to happen any longer. This was a very strange and rare Old Testament example. But think about the motivation. Much like the created angelic beings who fell originally, the Bible says they refused to stay within their own position of authority, but they left their dwelling. The language that's used there is that God had given them a domain. God had given them a sphere of existence and influence and ministry under his lordship as part of his economy, and they rejected it. They left it. They thought they knew better. And they came and committed immoral acts, and God brought about judgment. And so they've been kept in chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I don't think that we should picture here like physical chains that somewhere there's a group of angels who did bad stuff and they're physically bound with chains. But I think the point is they've been swept into the realm of the demonic beings until the last day when everything will be made right. 
They are in judgment. They are in gloomy darkness. They are no longer in the presence of the Lord. They faced judgment because of their sin. And now the next example that's given is the example of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. An example of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, following examples and following passages. Jude says they likewise indulged in sexual immorality. This is another clue of the kind of story and the type of angelic being that he's referring to in verse number six. And likewise, these people engaged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were, oddly enough, once again, angelic beings who had come to bring protection. But I think the oddity of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't understand and didn't realize that they were angelic beings. But what they did was they lusted after them and they wanted to commit acts of immorality and God brought judgment. They pursued unnatural desire and now Jude writes, they've served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It wasn't just that there was fire and brimstone and destruction that rained down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't just that much like the wildfires that are sweeping through California, when people go back months later after the fires have died down and there's still ash and everything's ruined and black, but Every once in a while you step and there's a little smolder of smoke that rises from the ashes. The, the people of God and those of the surrounding cities would have been able to look at Sodom and Gomorrah for weeks and months after the fact and see the evidence of God's destruction and his judgment. But it wasn't just those reminders it was the fact that their judgment is eternal. It wasn't simply the earthly reminder of their sin. It was the fact that they are forever out of the presence of God because they remained in their sin and they continued to pursue immorality. It is difficult for us in our day, it is difficult for us in our culture to come to texts like this to read back the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, to look at all the interpretations of it throughout the rest of the Bible, to read the lists of these kinds of sins of immorality in the New Testament, to find a world that wants to say that the specific kind of sin that's mentioned in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is homosexuality, is okay in our day. When Jude and so many other passages make it abundantly clear that this defiles God's word and God's design and God's promises. And so there is warning. There is warning. And now in verse number eight, he shifts and says, yet in like manner, these people. Yet in like manner, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, 
and blaspheme the glorious ones. Did you notice, did you catch in this first paragraph, much like in these first few verses, that he gives us three examples? And now he gives us three more examples. Jude loves triads. Throughout this letter, there are groups of threes that he uses to try to help us understand what's going on here in God's word and in God's economy. And so in verse 8, he shifts now and he puts the spotlight on the contemporary setting. Whatever was happening among these churches, and we don't know who they were, he lets us know now the parallels between these people in their modern context and how they're similar to the Old Testament examples that he's just given, okay? So follow his argument. The first three examples, the, the people of the Old Testament who didn't believe God's promises, they didn't believe God's word, they were not circumcised in heart, they were not of Israel. The angelic beings who left their position of authority, they did not live under the lordship of God, but they sought out immorality. And, and then the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who pursued sensuality and sexual immorality and would not listen to God's word and God's messengers. Now he brings it to the modern day and says, they have threefold relied upon first their dreams. Well, let me, let me come back to that in just a minute. The threefold, they've defiled their flesh, they've rejected authority, and they, they've blasphemed the glorious ones. The, the threefold examples that they give They've defiled the flesh, they've rejected authority, and they've blasphemed the glorious ones, verse 8. Textual difficulty of verse number 8, there was one in verse number 5, whether Jesus or not was the one who saved the people. Now the textual difficulty of verse number 8 is that they're called dreamers in some of your translations. The ESV renders the translation here, people who rely upon their dreams. And I think they've done that not only to help us with the word-for-word translation, but also to help us with interpretation. Some of your translations simply say dreamers. The Greek language literally describes them as dreaming people. Now, is it trying to describe them as those who are just dreamy people? They're just, you know, abstract, ethereal, spiritual, mystical people. I think the point that the ESV gives in its translation is that much like we see in other errors of the New Testament and into the first century and second century beyond the time of the New Testament is that these people were relying upon their dreams as revelation. They were listening to their own impulses, their own visions, the things about that they dreamed about. They were relying upon these things as their guides for their lifestyle and for their belief. These people in like manner, they relied upon their dreams. So, So rather than listening to God's authority, Rather than remaining in their proper sphere and being underneath God's word, underneath the authority of spiritual leadership, underneath the authority of of good Christian living and God's design for their lives, they just like these Old Testament examples are now relying upon other revelation which is leading them to do three things. The first he says is they've defiled their flesh. They've defiled their flesh. He's already given examples of the flesh being defiled, of people who've lived for their own pleasures rather than the purposes of God. And so I don't think that it is necessary for us to say that the specific sins of Sodom and Gomorrah 
must be the specific sins of the people to which Jude was writing. He's using types, but the evidence is very clear from this letter. There clearly is sensuality. There clearly is immorality. There clearly is pleasure-filled living that goes against God's word of whatever type it may have been. The deeds are being done and God is not pleased. And judgment is coming and so the warnings are coming. The second is he said that they have rejected authority. It's not simply the authority of the church. It's not the authority of even angelic beings. Some have tried to argue that that they uh, aren't listening to the ministering spirits of God. I think it's very clear that the authority that he's referring to is the authority of God. It's verse number four. They've perverted the grace of God and they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. I don't really think titles are all that important for sermons, but these people are living out the the evidence or the flow of the argument of verse number four. And so that the title of this sermon, Should You Care, is distorting the grace of God and denying the Lord Jesus. That's what happens when we sin. That's what happens when we fall into sin. That's what happens when we stay in unrepentant sin. We distort the grace of Jesus and we deny him as our Lord and Savior. We refuse to live underneath his authority. We've rejected it. And then the third example in verse number eight, they have blasphemed the glorious ones. Some of your translations say angels or angelic beings. It's literally a word that means glory. It's doxa where we get our term doxology from. They've blasphemed these glorious ones. Well, who in the world is he talking about here? And then verse nine makes it even more complicated. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Jesus, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You're like, well, we've got Numbers 14, and we've got Genesis chapter 6, and we've got Genesis chapter 19, and I remember Moses dying, and I remember God bringing about his burial, but I don't remember any episode like that in the Old Testament where the archangel Michael is arguing with the devil about the body of Jesus. It's because it's not there. We believe that Jude is citing a work called The Assumption of Moses, which in Jewish tradition was a historical book, but never a book that was considered to be canonical or inerrant or inspired. But there was legend that after the death of Moses, that the devil had come and had said he shouldn't get a proper burial because he's murdered an Egyptian once in his life and So you can go read this online or read the assumption of Moses yourself. And so there's an argument between Michael and the devil, but Michael doesn't try to get on the devil's turf. Michael simply says, the Lord will be the one to handle this. The Lord rebuke you. And so the Jewish story was that as always happens, the Lord wins and Moses' burial goes right on. The question obviously comes, why in the world would Jude be citing a book that's not canonical. Why would, why would he do that? 
Well, one, there are many examples in the New Testament, especially in the life of the Apostle Paul, where there are extra canonical works cited, but they're never put on the same level as authorial, um, inspired, inerrant scripture. They're never even put in the same category. But I think what we can learn from these types of citations is that there are other books that clearly God intended for the New Testament writers to use and to learn history from. And apparently, this was a historical reality that for some reason in God's sovereignty, he didn't allow to be included in the Old Testament. But Jude now brings it up by citing this other work, and we shouldn't equate this work as inspired scripture. We shouldn't think that it's inerrant. It's not to be included in the Bible. The canon shouldn't be revised or expanded. We have the books that we need, all 66 of the Old and New Testament. This is God's word for us, and it's good. And so a citation doesn't mean that it's equivalently scripture. But, but even the, the story is weird. Why would Michael do this? Why does Jude record it for us in this way? And I think the point is very simple. Michael's not going to get into arguments with demonic beings that he knows are powerful and in a realm in which he knows the Lord must win the battle. And so he simply puts the Lord out in front and says, it's the Lord that's going to rebuke you. So Michael pays careful attention to give the Lord his proper authority, his proper worship, his due, and he remains subservient to God in all of this. And I think the example, obviously, for us is, is clear. We should let the Lord be out front. We should be subservient to God's authority. So let me give you just, this is a side sermon, 30-second side sermon. Be real careful, Christians, when you say things like, well, I just rebuke that in the name of Jesus. There, there is this tendency, especially within the charismatic movement and influencing much of larger Christendom for Christian people, whether it's a health diagnosis or a physical diagnosis or some spiritual realm reality manifestation of sin and temptation for Christian people to try to claim, well, I just rebuke that. I would simply say two things. Be careful that when you use this phrase, be careful of using it lightly. Be careful of using it in a joking way. And I would urge, secondly, be careful using it at all. So, so what should we do instead? The same thing that Michael did, the same thing that Jude's trying to get the church to do. You just step back and put the Lord out front. Don't, don't try to get into some battle with the demonic beings. Don't try to step up and say, well, I, I got Jesus and I'm indwelled with the Holy Spirit, so you know, I just rebuke that in the name of Jesus. No, 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 why don't you bow in submission to God's word and let the Lord handle it. Friends, I, I had a man in my church in Louisville, Kentucky who got a cancer diagnosis one time and he just sat in our prayer meeting around the table one time and he just said, I'm not claiming it. I'm not claiming it. I'm just rebuking it in the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
Let the Lord rebuke it if it's going to be rebuked, friends. His cancer came. His cancer was vicious. His treatment was hard. The Lord eventually restored him to health. But the cancer was there. And he didn't rebuke it. We've got to be real careful when we try to wade into the spiritual and demonic realm that we just keep Jesus out front and keep his glory out front. Look at verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The point here in verse number 10 is clear. Michael understood what he should and shouldn't do. But these people, they blaspheme and they toy around with things that they don't even understand. They have no business speaking to these kinds of spiritual matters because they're immature, they're deceived, and they're living in sin. They have no business even speaking to it. In fact, the only thing that they do understand, Jude says, is they understand their passions like animals. That's the only thing that they understand is their fleshly pursuit and their desire. They walk in the way of their own flesh and so they shouldn't be listened to. And so the church, church, you should be careful. It is a warning not to persist in sin. It is a warning to be underneath authority both of God and his word and his people and his church. It's a warning to understand all truth according to God's word. So two points of application quickly as we close. The first, we need repentance. We need repentance in our lives. When we come to a passage like this, we can tend to step back and say, well, I'm, I mean, I'm not like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not like those weird angelic beings that were trying to come and have an unnatural relationship with the daughter of men. I mean, those people that, were, that Jude was writing to, they, those people were crazy. And friends, this is often how sin first takes its root in our lives. We try to define everything in terms of big sins that we don't do. We must continue to engage the big sins that the culture would have us say, just don't think much about that anymore. Think differently about that. Don't believe what God's word says about that anymore. No, no, no. We must continue to stand against that. We must stand against lust and immorality. We must stand against homosexuality. But friend, we, we got to drill this down deeper for us in our own lives. We have to stand against any rejection of God's word and his authority. We got to stand against a rejection of God's people. We have to stand against unrepentant anxiety and fear. We have to stand against unrepentant laziness and sloth. We have to stand against unrepentant divisiveness and grumbling. We have to stand against unrepentant pride and self-righteousness. We have to stand against unrepentant bitterness and anger and forgiveness, unforgiveness. All of those things can take the same kind of root in our lives. And if we persist in unrepentant sin, any of those things, then our life will eventually bear out that we were never truly born of God. 
But friend, if you find yourself in any of those sins today, anxiety, fear, laziness, divisiveness, chattiness that doesn't build up but tears down, pride and self-righteousness, unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, if you find a root of that in your heart this morning, I strongly urge you to repent before the Lord so that it doesn't fester and grow. And second, we need reminders. Let's get what he says in verse number five. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. It's the same kind of word that's used in verse number three to describe the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In modern paraphrase, it's as if Jude said, you ought to know better. But since you're proving that you don't, let me remind you, don't forget, don't forget. Is there any wonder, is there any wonder that he doesn't just address these kinds of sexually immoral sins, but he goes on to describe their pride and their grumbling and their boasting and how they show favoritism? He says, but you, beloved, live differently. And then what does he What does he base and rest all of his hopes on? Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you. He bookends this letter, and I'm going to remind you of it, of the next three weeks. You are the ones, if you're truly in Christ, you are the ones who are beloved and called, and you will be kept. And how are you kept? You keep looking to the one who will keep you from stumbling. It is only continually turning our eyes to Jesus that we do remember and that we are reminded. We are prone to forget, friends. Emblazoned on their consciousness, one commentator wrote, emblazoned on their consciousness are the consequences of persisting in sin. Listen to the language of this great hymn, which we'll sing together at the close of our service in just a little while. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, Old Testament story, word that means, by thy help I'm come thus far. Hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope, I hope, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. How will we safely arrive at home? By looking to the one who keeps us. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger. How did he rescue me? He interposed, he put his blood in my place. So, oh to grace, how great a debtor. Do you every day feel as if you're a debtor to grace? Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace be like a fetter. What's a fetter? Something that binds and seals. 
Bind my wandering heart to thee. You rescued me from my wandering, verse 2. But I still find my heart wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Wherever you may find yourself this morning, would you turn away from any sin that entangles you? And would you once again ask the Lord to seal your heart and keep you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would help us understand that we are debtors to grace. We pray that you might lead us even now in repentance. Church, rather, rather than singing our song at this point, would you, just, would you just remain in an attitude of prayer while our instrumentalists play? Maybe you know someone who is mired in unrepentant sin. Maybe you can't hear a sermon like this without thinking about someone who has professed faith in the Lord Jesus, but you know their life is astray. And Perhaps the Lord has convicted you this morning of sin and he's given you his warning again to return to him, to be reminded of your debt that you owe to grace and to the blood of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus. I'm gonna ask if you would, just in the silence of this moment while our instrumentalists play, would you just conduct business with the Lord? Friends, I know what time it is. Nothing's more important though than you being right with the Lord this morning. Would you not leave this room without confessing sin to the Lord? Without going to another brother or sister before Sunday school and making things right? Without asking for help or accountability? And if you are here this morning and you find this sermon especially convicting because you know you don't know Jesus. We would love to share with you how you can know him. In just a few moments, I'm gonna be out in the Callaway room and I would love for you to just stick around and just tell me what's going on in your life and I would love to talk and pray with you then. For just a few more moments, church family, would you allow the Lord to just search your heart? Father, would you be pleased to work in our lives this morning however you would wish, for we pray in Jesus' name.